0: This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author chris lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I have missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include Mature Themes. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 231. Greetings, Metamorphs! Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. Each week, I share a piece of my fresh new fiction with you, and keep you informed on my life and my writing. So let's get started, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 4 in my Metamore City erotic fantasy, Homecoming. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 228 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Seven months into their relationship, Kate and John have received an invitation from Kate's parents. They want John to come with Kate and stay with them for the week leading up to Metacama, the Empire's national day of thanksgiving and remembrance. John has never met Kate's parents before and knows almost nothing about them, but Kate has been telling her parents about him. She hasn't said that John is an incubus, or that he's a priest of hedonism, but she has made it clear to them that their relationship is serious. Since John can't spend the holiday with his own family, Kate is hoping that she can share with John a sense of place and belonging. John has deep misgivings, but for Kate's sake, he's willing to give it a shot. Before he could leave the city, though, John had to obtain permission from Mistress Jasmine, the succubus matriarch who runs the Metamore Temple for the Church of Hedonism. Before he could even make the request, Jasmine roped John into a day of working at her side, helping her with the many responsibilities she holds as head priestess. Jasmine told John that she senses that he is getting bored. He's almost forty, and it's time for him to begin taking on a leadership role in the temple. John agreed to become Jasmine's protege, but first he wants a week off to go with Kate to Alamar Province over Metacama. Jasmine, who is no fool, quickly realized that Kate was taking John home to meet the parents, and to John's amazement, she agreed to the request. With a sinking feeling, John realized that Jasmine was giving him just enough rope to hang himself. She asked to notify the Lightbringers about John's movements, which means they will have advance warning that an incubus is coming to Alomar. If the truth about John is exposed, Jasmine is betting that Kate's parents will react badly to it, and force their daughter to choose between them and John. John will come slinking back to Metamore, with no further distractions from his hobby Kate, and Jasmine can get to work reshaping John in her own image. With Jasmine's blessing thus given, John heads out to Alamar with Kate, desperately hoping that their relationship will survive the experience. Homecoming A Tale of Metamorph City, written in red by Chris Lester. Chapter 4 Monday, November 20th John guided his red-and-black racing skimmer down the on-ramp, and merged onto the eastbound side of Highway 20. The endless snarl of Metamore City traffic gave way to mostly open road, and he let out a happy sigh as he pushed the accelerator to the floorboard. The electric motor hummed, the lift turbines growled, and the sleek little craft shot forward going from fifty to a hundred and fifty kph in about two and a half seconds. From the seat beside him, Kate let out an almost sexual sound of pleasure. Gods, she said, that never gets old. John neatly wove between two rumbling ground trucks and a skimmer van holding a family of six. The children pressed their faces to the glass with expressions of excitement and wonder and John waved to them as he went flying by. "'Aren't you supposed to be the voice of law-abiding prudence in this relationship?' John asked. "'Screw prudence,' Kate said. "'I'm on vacation.' They raced past clusters of suburban housing developments and wide-open fields of winter wheat." To the northeast rose the foothills of the barrier range, painted with scattered daubs of orange and gold, where the autumn leaves still held on. The mountain peaks were already covered in a thick blanket of snow, but down here they still had a few more blessed weeks before the winter came. The sky was a crisp, brilliant blue. A perfect day for a road trip, John thought. So, Kate said with a playful sparkle in her eyes. Should we see how well you were paying attention when I told you about my family? John groaned. Ugh. For the record, it is grossly unfair for the detective with a perfect memory to blame us lesser beings for forgetting things. Kate chuckled. Noted. Now tell me what you remember. John thought back to the conversations they'd had over the last week. At times, it had felt like he was being briefed for a high-stakes military operation. Um, okay. Sam Catane's an Alamar local, grew up near Ellentown. He teaches at your old high school, science and monology, which seems like a weird combination to me. Eh, not that weird, Kate said. Depending how you look at it, magic's just another kind of physics. She chuckled again. Just don't tell my wizard guild I said that. Is your dad a mage, too? John asked. Nah, just a big nerd. He likes to know how things work. Got it. John racked his brain some more. Uh, he likes skyball, so that's a safe topic. He likes cooking and baking. Does his own home improvements. Tries out new science experiments in the garage. Oh, you said he likes playing games. Does he play poker? No, and nothing else that involves gambling either, Kate said. Grandpa Katane thought it was a sin. Damn, I almost had some common ground there. Kate grinned. Don't worry. Anything we play, he'll be more than happy to teach you. What about my mom? Lisa, John said. Grew up in the hill country in Verdania province, but she never talks about it, so don't ask. Moved to Metamore City for uni, married your bio-dad. She had you when she was pretty young, right? Kate nodded. She was twenty-two. I wasn't exactly planned. She forgot to check the charge on her birth control amulet. Luckily, they decided to keep me. Lucky for me, too, John said, reaching over and squeezing her hand. Ah, Kate said, in an exaggerated tone. John skipped over the next part of Lisa's biography, how her husband Jacob, a police detective, had been murdered by the Brotherhood of the Sepulchre, a secretive and powerful apocalypse cult that Kate and John had recently tangled with themselves. Jacob's partner, Joe Montgomery, had spirited Lisa and Kate out of the city, hiding them with his in-laws in Alamar, where the cult couldn't reach them he wondered how much Montgomery had told Lisa about the people who were after them. Kate hadn't known any of those details until earlier this year, and the hurt was still fresh. Between that revelation and the lingering post-traumatic stress she had from a firefight in April, Kate and her therapist had plenty to talk about. She was making progress, reportedly, and in John's experience, she was definitely sleeping more soundly than she used to, Still, no good would have come from dragging it up now. She married Sam when you were seven, he continued. After that... Sorry, I don't remember what she does. That's because it's not very memorable, Kate said, dryly. She sells real estate, works in her garden, helps out at church, plays with her dog... And that's about it. She shook her head. I love her to bits, but honestly she's kind of boring. Whatever adventurous spirit made her move to the city, she used it up a long time ago. Which is a shame. That's what you think. John felt a wry, knowing smile tug the corners of his lips. He tried to cover it with a look of bland, generic amusement. Kate knew him too well to let him get away with it. What? What was that look? Nothing. She sounds like a lovely person he said, blandly. Kate's eyes narrowed, and her own smile took on a predatory edge. Bullshit. What are you thinking? John spared a quick look away from the road to raise an eyebrow at her. Are you sure you want to know? he asked, in a conspiratorial tone. I mean, this is your mother we're talking about. Kate folded her arms. When she spoke, her tone went noticeably flat. All right, now I'm starting to get annoyed. John raised a hand, palm outward, in a gesture of surrender. Okay, look, I meet a lot of different kinds of people in my job. All ages, all walks of life. And I'll tell you one thing I know, as sure as I know anything. Deep down, nobody is boring. Everybody's got something a little wild inside them that's waiting to come out. The ones who look boring... There's two explanations for it. Either they're hiding from the world, because they're afraid it won't accept them, or they're hiding from themselves. Kate snorted. (laughs) And you don't think your perspective is maybe just a little biased? I mean, sure, that's probably true for the folks who join the Church of Hedonism, but come on, everything you need to know is right there in the name. Not everybody's a closet sex maniac. It's not always about sex, no. John agreed. But there's always something, I promise you. In fact, I'll bet she's got something adventurous she's doing right now, and you've just never noticed it. Ha! Kate said. You do remember you're talking to a detective, right? And everybody's number one blind spot is their parents, John said. Kate paused, considering this. Then she looked back at him, and her face split into a wide grin. All right, I'll take that bet. Yeah? We're staying with my parents for a week. I'll bet you can't find one thing about my mother's life right now that isn't safe, boring, and normal. Loser buys us New Year's Eve dinner at the Panoramic. Tempting, John said. What if I think something is interesting and you don't? We'll let Morgan break the tie. Deal? John shrugged and squeezed her hand again. Deal. Two hours later, they passed into Alamar, a gently rolling land of small farms and oak and maple forests. The majestic railways, too, ran parallel to the highway, and every train station was surrounded by a burst of development—shops and houses and apartment complexes that had sprung up like clusters of mushrooms against the surrounding countryside. Over the next hour, the stations got closer together, the development grew denser, and the little train towns were swallowed up in the suburban sprawl around Allentown, home of the world-famous St. Mary's College. John took an exit about 30 kilometers from downtown, then spent half an hour following the skimmer's navigation software, as it took them through block after block of strip malls, department stores, fuel stations, and residential neighborhoods. There were no distinguishing landmarks or visible geography, the Barrier Mountains were an hour's drive north of them, and well out of view. And after a while, John began to feel an eerie sense of deja vu. He could have sworn that he had passed the same fast-food restaurant and coffee shop four different times. Elegantly lettered signs announced their arrival in one new municipality after another. Fox Grove, Littlefield, Gordon Downs, but if there were any differences between one city and the next, they were undetectable to John. They curved north and east around Ellentown proper, and the sprawl started to thin out again. The terrain grew hillier, and they passed several parks, a golf course, and a small lake with attendant marshlands. They came to a town where the houses looked older and less homogenized, The chain stores gave way to small and eclectic storefronts, and the trees lining the streets were mighty, gnarled old things, close to a meter thick and ten or fifteen meters high. A sign by the side of the road read, Welcome to Bridger Heights. The rest of the sign was covered with the symbols of various clubs, unions, and charity groups that, presumably, had some affiliation with the town. Home sweet home. "'Kate said quietly, as she stared out the window at the buildings going past. "'John couldn't tell if she was being ironic or not. "'He wondered if Kate herself knew. "'It's cute,' John said. "'He checked the nav-map, then turned off the main road onto a side street lined with oak trees. "'The leaves were still hanging on, but they had turned a uniform russet brown, "'and they waved and fluttered in the autumn breeze.' Looks like a good place to be a kid. It was, Kate admitted. Quiet, out of the way, good schools, lots of nature nearby. I was happy here. Her smile turned a little sad. For a while, anyway. What changed? John asked. Kate shrugged. Just me, I guess. I had to get away, figure out who I was when I wasn't Sam and Lisa's kid. Bridger High School approached them on the right, a sprawling collection of buildings in red-orange brick set amid scattered trees and vast amounts of open lawn. A skyball stadium, swimming pool, and athletics field took up at least a third of the campus. John saw Kate perk up at the side of the place, leaning forward in her seat, her smile broader, the light in her green eye sparkling. They passed the main entrance to the school. A banner overhead read, Homecoming 2000. Welcome back, Badgers. A smaller sign to one side reminded students that there would be no classes this week, and announced the schedule of homecoming events. The festivities included a parade, a skyball game against the Littlefield Ravens, an alumni banquet, and a formal dance. Ooh, Kate said, we should go to the game tomorrow. I haven't been in forever, but Dad says the Badgers are good this year. John resisted the urge to roll his eyes. He'd known that high school sports were popular in the provinces, but he had never understood the appeal. I'll go to the game on one condition. I want to take you to the dance. Kate wilted a little. Uh, Do we have to? I have traumatic memories of high school dances. That's because you were a head taller than any of the boys, John said, confidently. Let's wipe away those awkward teenage memories with something more positive. He flashed her his most devilish smile. I promise you I am an excellent dance instructor. Kate gave him a mock glare. The horizontal tango does not count. John chuckled at that. A low, sexy sound that he knew could send Kate's hormones into overdrive. She knew exactly what he was doing, but she didn't seem to mind. She reached over and covered his hand with hers. All right, she said. I'll dance with you. But you better make me look really good out there. He lifted her hand to his lips and kissed it. That will be profoundly easy. And that's the end of Chapter 4. Come back next time, when John meets Kate's parents for the first time. James T. Farrell said, If you let conditions stop you from working, they'll always stop you. So let's see how my work is progressing this week. Here's your weekly writing report. This update covers the week of May 9th to May 15th. I wrote 2,760 words this week, over the course of 4.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 649 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 28 days without breaking my chain. I didn't get as much writing done this week, because Chapter 3 of Homecoming was super long, and it took me three days to finish editing. I'm roughly halfway through writing Chapter 5 of Honor Bound. I've been looking forward to this chapter because it introduces an important new supporting character named Alex. That's A L I X. They're an Androgyne noble, a house scion who has the potential to be an important friend and ally for Honor and Natasha. In fleshing out the world building for 19th century Metamorph, I've decided the Androgynes occupy a unique social stratum in this very stratified culture. As shapeshifters who can appear male or female, their very existence is a threat to the orderly, well-defined gender roles in this society. As a result, the ruling class has explicitly defined them as a third sex, with their own expectations for formal dress, modes of address, and overall decorum. Upper-class males all wear beards or mustaches, which androgynes can't easily replicate because shifting erases their facial hair. While gentlemen wear waistcoats, long coats, and plain cravats, androgyne nobles wear puffy shirts with external corsets, kilts with long stockings, and lacy cravats. Ladies, meanwhile, wear long dresses with corsets underneath, and jewelry or scarves instead of cravats. Androgynes do wear makeup, but generally less of it than ladies. Therefore, no matter what form a noble androgynes body is in, they are clearly distinguishable from both gentlemen and ladies, and they are treated differently as a result. They can move in the worlds of both men and women, but they're never truly a part of either. Putting Alex in this story gives me a chance to do things with the androgynes that are different from both the modern-day Metamor, where gender roles are more fluid, and from Metamor Keep where the cursed population was still so new that cultural expectations hadn't had a chance to set in yet. It also lets me put a sympathetic, non-binary character right in the middle of the story, which I think is valuable from a representation point of view. I'm looking forward to writing Alex, and getting to know them better. And now, the feedback. Robbie Harris wrote in with some more questions about the curse of Metamor, he asks, Does cursed tourism exist? Does the Majestrix control tourism because of it? Hi, Robbie. Cursed tourism, as you call it, is something that has existed since the very earliest days of Metamorkeep. Long before he became the god of war, Lord Richter was a Southlander battle mage who suffered from a terminal illness of the lungs. After all conventional means of healing had failed him, he traveled to Metamorph Keep and allowed the curse to take hold of him. The same magic that transformed him into a raccoon theriomorph also healed his lungs, restoring him to full health. In the centuries since then, the healing power of the curse has become well known throughout the Western world. At first, only the most desperate souls were willing to take this option because in those early days, there was no way to control or predict how the curse would change you. After Kaya unlocked the secrets of the curse's magic, around the 9th century, CR, it became possible to request the type of curse you would receive. That opened the way for a different kind of curse tourism, from people who wanted their bodies to better reflect their inner selves. In the modern day, roughly 20% of the Metamore City population are androgynes, But there are hundreds of thousands of androgynes living far beyond the range of the curse, and curse tourism is a big reason why. Trans and non-binary people come from all over the world to take the curse, as we saw in the short story, Missing Pieces. The androgyne curse provides the fastest, safest, and most permanent method of gender-affirming body modification in the world— Even though other kinds of transformation magic exist, none of them have the same reliable track record as the Androgyne Curse. Some of those new Androgynes decide to stay in Metamorph City, but most go back to wherever they came from. What kind of welcome they receive when they return home can vary greatly, depending on the customs and attitudes of their homeland. Everyone who receives the curse receives identity-confirming paperwork, though, so from a legal standpoint, it usually isn't difficult for them to resume their old lives. A few reactionary nations have passed laws that discriminate against androgynes, in an effort to discourage their citizens from taking advantage of the curse. Kaya tries to use diplomatic pressure to prevent this prejudice— but often it's easier to resettle these folks as refugees within the Empire's borders. As you've probably guessed from the above, Kaya doesn't do anything to try to restrict curse tourism. She believes deeply in the rights of sentient beings to make their own choices about their own bodies, and if someone believes that taking the curse is going to make them happier, healthier, or more at home in their own skin, she doesn't think it's her place to tell them any different. That said, the Office of Curse Administration does make a wide variety of counseling services available, both for those considering the curse and for those who are adjusting to it after the change. These services are optional, but strongly encouraged, because once the curse has been imposed, it can't be changed. Kaya trusts these human employees to provide curse applicants with the advice and perspective that Kaya herself is unable to provide. It's not a perfect system, but it works pretty well, and Cursed Dysphoria is a lot rarer since it was put into place. Thanks for the question! If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900. Then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com/slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2019 and 2020 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvette Press. The show is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License, So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.